I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to uh, Luke chapter 19. Drew a blank for a second there. We are definitely in Luke chapter 19, verse 28. <clears throat> I'd like you to turn there. Just as you're turning, uh, Martin Luther, the reformer, he, he distinguished between two different types of theologians, two different types of theology. He distinguished between theologians of the cross on the one hand and theologians of glory on the other. And uh, Church historian Carl Truman uh, explains what Luther was getting at like this. He explains it like this. He says, The theologians of glory, therefore, are those who build their theology in the light of what they expect God to be like. Theologians of glory build their theology on what they expect God to be like. So we talked a little about this this concept last week. Um, This idea of bringing in our own understanding of things and imposing them on the Bible. So for example, uh, this is the example I gave last week, we might hear something like the fact that God is for us, and therefore who can be against us, and, uh, and, and a theologian of glory might bring in their own understanding to that and conclude, uh, well, if God's for me, then I'm not going to suffer. Everything's going to go just fine. This is what we might bring to the table to think if God Almighty is for me, then everything's going to work out just fine. Uh, Or such people, theologians of glory, they might uh, hear a phrase like divine power, and uh, and they think then of you know to try to understand what that would look like or be. They they think of the uh, the strongest human might they can think of, and then maybe uh, multiply that, maybe even by infinity, and then they think that's what God's power must be like. Uh, But Truman goes on to describe. Uh, what Luther viewed as theologians of the cross, he says they are those who build their theology in the light of God's own revelation of himself in Christ hanging on the cross. So, for such people, therefore, uh, they would understand a concept like divine power a little differently. Looking through the lens of the cross, through the lens of scripture, they would understand, they would see that it's through the apparent weakness of the cross, the apparent weakness of Christ dying, suffering, hanging on a tree, that there God defeated the power of death uh, and defeated defeated the powers of darkness through this apparently what would seem like a weak display of suffering and dying. Uh, And yet it is in this we see the power of God. And so uh, power of God then is, we ought not to think of it merely as some sort of raw might as we might be tempted to think of it, Uh, But the Bible portrays it as much more than that and even shows us this counterintuitive way of viewing it uh, as he defeats death through weakness, through the cross. Uh, Likewise, this idea of God being for us, a theologian of the cross would understand that this does not mean we will not suffer, but rather that for his children, for those trusting in Christ, God takes their suffering and he redeems it, if you will. He uses it for good in the life of a believer. So this is essentially what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 1, when he speaks of how God confounds human wisdom, human reasoning. We tend to think of things a certain way, and yet God upends that. He comes in and and does things very differently, and it's through the seeming folly of the cross that there is redemption. Again, 
We would not normally conceive of God's power being evident in weakness. That doesn't make sense to natural man. Nor would we conceive of salvation through a cross. Nor do we normally conceive of God being for us when everything seems as though it's against us. And yet this is what the Bible teaches. And we come to another text today, uh, another occasion in the life of Jesus that confounds the theologian of glory. We come to the so-called triumphal entry. Uh, And so if you want to bring in uh, your concept of, your usual concept of triumphant, uh, and you want to bring that into this text, you will not understand why we would ever refer to this as the triumphal entry. Uh, It appears on the face of it to be anything but a triumphal entry. However, if we put on a biblical view of what we will read here, if we see it from the divine perspective, from the perspective of the authors of Scripture, from God's perspective, from Luke's perspective as he's writing this book, we will see the triumph indeed, and we will see the wisdom of God, even though it is missed by so many. And so I just invite you to read this with me. We're in verse 28 of Luke 19, and we'll go to verse 40. It says this, And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, For all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So as we look at this today, I I want us to look at this text through two perspectives, two lenses, if you will, two angles, both of which we find in the text, represented by different people. And the goal is that we might ultimately see the wisdom of God in this text, see the glory of what is happening here, the triumph here. Though this is a, uh, in many ways, a seemingly unimpressive event, that we might be encouraged, we might be strengthened by it, that we might see Christ for who He is, and to worship God because of what is going on here. And so, uh, the first lens I want us to look through is the natural lens. The natural lens. We might call this the unbelieving lens even, but the lens of the natural man, the natural person. This is essentially the view that the Pharisees have at the end of this account. Uh, So in verse 39, we read there, they say to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Right. This, This whole episode to them is shameful. Uh, This is shameful. This is not a good thing. 
There's nothing here worthy of celebration, much less praising God for. It's entirely inappropriate in their eyes. Nothing glorious about this. And so they rebuke Jesus. They tell him to rebuke his disciples for what they're doing. Um, so let's just back up and let's see what it was. Let's consider what it was that these Pharisees were witnessing, what they saw. So we're told in verse 28 that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem with his disciples. Well, to the Pharisees, to the natural man, there's nothing unique about this. It's just about time for the Passover. It was not uncommon for people to come to Jerusalem to celebrate various feasts, to pilgrimage there. This is a fairly normal thing. It was a special thing. It was a good thing, but, but, but lots of people did it. So it's not really an, an extraordinary thing in, in their eyes that Jesus is doing. He's coming to Jerusalem as many before him have and many after him would. Uh, he comes in. He's borrowed a donkey to do this. Luke uses the word colt. Uh, it can refer to either a young horse or to a young donkey. Matthew's clear that it's a donkey. And so he comes riding in on a donkey. It's, you know, this is not a war horse. This is not a noble steed that he rides in on. It's just a donkey. It's saddled with some cloaks. You know, the saddle is not inlaid with gold or anything fine. It's just some cloaks laid upon it. And in he rides on this. And as he's riding towards the city, he has followers gathering around him. They're laying cloaks on the ground in front of him, in front of the donkey, and they're walking across this. There's no red carpet here, uh, but they are laying their cloaks down for him. And so what they're witnessing is kind of a mock uh, processional for an important dignitary who they're going to laud as a king into the city. So this is not an uncommon practice. An important dignitary would arrive to a city, and the people would go out to meet the person, and they would come in with much fanfare, uh, much pomp, and it would be this impressive display. Everybody knows how important and impressive this person is. Uh, even in Israel's history, there are uh, some uh, examples kind of of this. Uh, Solomon was paraded on, uh, on David's mule when he was declared king. Um, there's, there's a few things kind of like this. Uh, David, when he returned from, uh, after he'd been run out of Jerusalem by Absalom, he returns and there's some celebration as he enters the city. Uh, and, and throughout the Roman Empire, the Jews would have seen this practice uh, in other places as well. And in Jerusalem with other you know, Roman dignitaries, other people who would have arrived throughout their history is common practice. And yet, in this case, in terms of entrances, if you're going to compare this, uh, this is not that impressive. Even with people gathering around and, uh, and celebrating him, uh, there's nothing very uh, remarkable and impressive about this. Uh, his disciples are declaring him to be a king. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord in, in verse 38. Uh, they're greeting him with Psalm 118 in this way. They're declaring him king, and yet, really, look at this display. There's nothing that impressive about it. In fact, the Pharisees probably think this might get us in trouble. This is kind of a silly thing that's going on that should not be happening. Moreover, these people, they're not only there, they're, they're worshiping, they're rejoicing in this, and these, these simple folks are being duped by this man, and this is not good. And so they rebuke Jesus and his disciples. This is embarrassing. Jesus, rebuke them. Teacher, come on. Rebuke them already. Knock it off. Put an end to the silliness, the charade. Don't, 
lead these people on like this. You know you're not a king. This is not how the Messiah is going to enter. Enough of this. This is the natural lens to this. There's nothing very remarkable about it. Can you see it from this perspective? I don't think it's terribly difficult to see it from that perspective. I think we all probably normally and in our natural condition would not see this as anything that great. From the perspective of how man would think of this, it's not, this is silly. Again, kings come in with much fine attire, the best of animals, the best of circumstances, the best of people, nobility around them. And this is not what's happening here. And again, from the Pharisees' perspective, these people are being led astray. This is such a small thing to begin with, and yet these people are fooled by it. Again, this is not what we would naturally consider triumphant. Even with the crowds, it still looks fairly sad. And so, rebuke these people, roll it up, send them home, be done with it. And this is how natural man would typically perceive this event. Indeed, it's how most people perceive the gospel itself. How most people view the scriptures in general. They're old. This is dated. Uh, This doesn't work anymore in our world. Roll that thing up. Be done with it. Go home. Save yourself the hassle of traveling to church on a Sunday, of joining and gathering. Just do whatever you want. Uh, It's entirely unimpressive when you look at this. But again, if we would see this, if we would see the scriptures from God's perspective, if we would see this event from God's perspective, we would see the wonder of this moment. We would perceive it vastly differently than these Pharisees. So on the surface, yes, this appears like nothing much, but we must be careful we do not judge the Lord by our feeble sense. And so we want to now, of course, look to the divine lens. We want to look at this from the perspective of the Bible, from the perspective of the Scriptures, from the perspective of Luke, and the perspective of God Himself through His Word. So, back to verse 28. We're reminded that this is the final leg of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. So if you remember back in chapter 9, in fact, keep your finger there and flip back to chapter 9, verse 51. There we were told, Luke writes, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up to his ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And with those words, he begins this new section that goes all the way until uh, Where we're at today in chapter 19 is Jesus is entering Jerusalem. And we've been seeing this numerous times. All that Jesus has been doing through these last 10 chapters, healing people, rebuking people, uh, teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God, so on. All that he's been doing, his miracles, all of this, in the background of all of this, is the fact that his ultimate goal and purpose is to head to Jerusalem. And he's told us a couple of times what awaits him when he gets there. Namely, his suffering, his death and then eventually his resurrection again. So Jesus has, Luke has been telling us that Jesus' ministry is driving towards Jerusalem where things are going to reach their climax. And so we have here no ordinary man pilgriming, pilgrimaging, pilgriming, what? Going on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Whatever the word is. 
Again, this would not look spectacular. He's another man. A lot of people are coming to Jerusalem at this time. But Luke has been preparing us. The Lord has been preparing us through his word. Jesus has been focused. This is a central moment, a pinnacle moment, in which the Messiah himself will come to Jerusalem. Where his ministry will reach its climax. Where everything that's been written about him in the law and the prophets will be fulfilled. Consider that for a moment. Just consider that. All the way back, as early as Genesis 3.15, where we get the first promise that there's going to be a seed of a woman who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. All the way through Israel's long and tumultuous history, even before Israel's a nation. The promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. All the promises made from all the different prophets of this one who would come, the servant from Isaiah. As we'll see, the, this king that Zechariah says would come. So many prophecies over and over again. Many, many years have passed. Many people have wondered if it will ever come to pass. And then at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, there is much rejoicing. The angels celebrate. The king has arrived. The son of David is here. He will sit on the throne of his father David forever. He is here. There is all kinds of rejoicing. There is much joy through those first four chapters of the book of Luke. He begins his ministry. We're told his face is set towards Jerusalem because that's where it's going to climax. And now, here he is entering Jerusalem. This is not an ordinary man. This is not an ordinary entrance to Jerusalem. This is the Lord Jesus coming. If we miss the fact that this is the one whom the whole of the Old Testament scriptures are driving towards, are pointing towards, and he has now come, and he's entering Jerusalem to purchase redemption for his people, we will certainly miss the significance of what's going on here. Verse 29 tells us that he was nearing Bethpage and Bethany. Uh, sorry, nearing Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. So there, there is, if you think of Jerusalem... Uh, to the east of Jerusalem, there was this valley, the Kidron Valley, and then there was a north to south ridge of mountains. I believe there were three peaks there, and the middle one was the Mount of Olives. Well, on the eastern side of those, if you're looking at a map, it would be that side. Uh, the eastern side of those mountains, we have uh, this, this town of Bethany and Bethphage. Bethany, that's where Lazarus was from. In, in John chapter 11, that's where Jesus had healed uh, Lazarus, or raised Lazarus, I should say just prior to entering Jerusalem. So he was at Bethany and Bethpage, and, uh, and Jesus from there sends two unnamed disciples into those, one of those villages and tells these disciples what they're going to find, namely a cult that nobody has ever sat on, nobody's ridden on, and he tells them they're to bring it to him. And he goes on to tell them, if anyone asks them what they're doing with it or why they're taking it, they're to respond by saying that the Lord has need of it. And so, of course, that very thing happens. The owners ask why they're taking the colt, why they're untying it, and they tell them the Lord has need of it. And that seems to be enough. That seems to satisfy the owners, and they're able to take this donkey to the Lord. People debate uh, whether this is uh, uh, something that Jesus prearranged with the owners, or whether this was uh, Jesus speaking with prophetic knowledge of what would happen, of what they would find when they got into this village. And I, it seems straightforward to me that Luke is presenting this to us as an instance of 
prophetic insight on the part of the Lord. He just knows what's there. He knows who's there. He knows this donkey will be there, and he's telling them to go get it. And I think unless you deny the possibility of someone having prophetic insight, especially the Lord, in which case there's all kinds of problems, uh, I don't see any reason why you know, we should view it any differently. Jesus knows what they'll find. He knows there's a cult there that's not been ridden. And in terms of why would donors just give this up to, to Jesus, well, it's quite possible, I would suggest, that they are themselves followers of Jesus, that they've heard the Lord Jesus, they're trusting in him, they're disciples of his, and so when they find out, you know, it's the, the Lord is asking for this donkey, they just let it go. They're happy to let it go. I think anyone here who's a disciple of Christ would probably do the same if the Lord was here and he wanted to borrow anything of yours, he'd probably gladly let him have it. So, so Jesus knows what they're going to find. He sends these disciples in to this village. They, they get this donkey. They secure it. Uh, but notice how Jesus refers to himself. When, when they're approached and asked why they're untying this donkey, they're supposed to say to him, the Lord has need of it. He refers to himself as the Lord. Now, sometimes when that word is used, it can uh, just be used commonly, like uh, the term master. Um, so it's in one sense nothing very extraordinary. Uh, but of course, the Bible is very clear that to confess that Jesus is Lord is saying much more than just that he is a master like any other. Uh, it's a much greater claim than that. It's much more than just a respectful title. In some cases, it's very clear that the term Lord is a declaration of Jesus' divinity, that he's God. So, for example, in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, Joel declares, he's talking about a later day, and he says that everyone who calls upon the name of Yahweh, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, that's the Old Testament covenant God, Israel's God, Yahweh, anyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. Then in the New Testament, we have Paul in Romans 10, 13, he says, he quotes Joel 2.32, and he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he's clearly referring to Jesus when he says that. So he's equating Yahweh with Jesus, which would be blasphemy if Jesus is not in fact Lord. He's not in fact Yahweh. And he's equating Jesus with, with Yahweh. In other cases, this title Lord uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a title given to Jesus as the risen mediator who has been glorified, exalted to the Father's right hand, and given the title of Lord. We see that in Acts 2.36. And so even as we see Jesus use this word to describe himself, as he says, the Lord has need of it, uh, even if others didn't grasp initially, didn't see how pregnant with meaning this term was, it nevertheless is loaded with meaning. As Luke writes this, when, he, when Luke was writing his gospel, it's after the resurrection, and he's writing to Theophilus. Uh, so he knows much more even than the disciples would have when Jesus first said this, when he told them, you know, tell them the Lord has need of it. Uh, Luke is writing from a, a vantage point of a little more perspective, knowing that Jesus is, is risen. And in Acts 2, for example, this is also written by Luke, so we know he, he, he grasps this. He relates Peter's sermon, in which Peter also quotes Joel chapter 2, verse 32, to make the same point that Paul makes, that 
the Lord in whose name there is salvation is none other than Jesus himself. And so we have the benefit of hindsight. We have the benefit of fuller revelation even after uh, this, this event where Jesus is entering the city. Uh, things were still cloudy for many of these disciples at this time. We saw that even back in chapter 18. They, his disciples did not understand what he meant when he said he was going to have to die and then rise again. We, help, we are helped to see what is really going on here. That this man who's entering Jerusalem riding on this donkey is none other than the Lord. He's none other than God in human flesh. Again, this, this looks so simple, this looks ridiculous to the eyes of so many, and yet we have the eternal Son of God in human form coming to His people to work salvation. And at first glance, this just doesn't seem possible. Uh, this is not how God would ever come to His people in such a humble state, in such a mediocre condition. Uh, if kings of the earth would arrive in much more glory and pomp, surely God, if He were to come and show up, would show up in a much more glorious way than this. This is not how we think God should come. This is not how we think that He should save. And yet, this was not something that God did not prepare His people for. The truth is, he did declare in advance that this is how the king would arrive. Uh, we read earlier in the service, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, uh, and, and Luke does not explicitly quote Zechariah 9, but in Matthew's account and John's account, they both do explicitly quote Zechariah 9, and, uh, and, and it's clearly the backdrop to what's happening here. And so... What's happening is a, a fulfillment of a prophecy made in Zechariah about 500 years prior to this, in which it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king has come, the king is entering Jerusalem. The Lord has come to the city, the city that he chose to be his special dwelling place on the earth. He is righteous, he is bringing salvation, just as Zechariah said, but lest we fill in the details of what that's going to look like with our own understanding, Zechariah also tells us that he would be humble and he would be mounted on a donkey. And so we find Jesus now entering the city of Jerusalem in just that condition. Humbled and mounted on a donkey. So the salvation that he's bringing, it would not be a militaristic campaign. It is true that one day he will return to bring about judgment. He will, uh, as we read back in Zechariah 9, uh, it says that when the king would come, he'd be mounted on a donkey, but it goes on to say that he would rule from sea to sea. Uh, so these, these are what we've talked about before. There's the now and there's the not yet. Uh, the now part, the part of, of this fulfillment of Zechariah that has already been accomplished by the Lord Jesus is the fact that he has come. He has come to Jerusalem. He has come humbly. He's become mounted on a donkey. He has brought salvation. And the not yet part of his 
reign is the fact that he will yet rule from sea to sea when he returns. So it's not as if there will be no glorious return. We know there will be. Jesus will come back in glory. Nobody will be able to miss it. He has already taught as much in Luke. It will light up. It will be like lightning from one end of the sky to the other. Everyone will see it. It will be something that cannot be missed. And yet, in Jesus' first coming, the salvation that he brought would not be a military campaign. He would come and deal with the root problem for human beings, namely sin. His coming in righteousness would mean that he would actually offer himself, the righteous, for the unrighteous. As he said back in chapter 18, 31 to 34, this would involve his suffering. It would involve his being mistreated in Jerusalem. It would involve his death and then, of course, his resurrection. And so Jesus comes. He comes to Jerusalem. And he's unrecognizable to so many. John says he, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Many of the Jews, particularly the leadership, rejected him. Wanted nothing to do with him. Would have him despised. But he comes, the king nevertheless. The one whom the prophets, like Zechariah, foretold would come. He's entering Jerusalem. And so the disciples, they grasp something of this. Again, their understanding is not full and complete, but they believe him to be the Messiah. They lay their cloaks on the animal, and Jesus rides along on this, this, this donkey, while more people yet join in and lay their cloaks on the ground in front of the donkey. This is an act of homage. It's an act of public honor of Jesus. Now, there's another place where a similar thing occurred. Uh, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 9, verse 13, there, Elisha, the prophet Elisha, he anoints Jehu to be king over the nation of Israel. And uh, it's kind of a quiet thing, because there's already a king of Israel, but the Lord's rejecting him and anointing Jehu. And he's a little bit hesitant to tell people what just happened, that Elisha anointed him king. But eventually he does tell them. And it says there, Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him, on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so similarly, this seems to be a somewhat hasty act of respect and honor to the Lord. He's here, he's coming, they acknowledge him to be Messiah, to be the king, and so with whatever they have, their cloaks, they lay those at his feet as he walks along. It's not exactly an impressive display by worldly standards, but it's genuine nonetheless. In verse 37, it says that they're on their way down the Mount of Olives, so they're now on the western slopes of the mountain, heading down into this valley, this Kidron Valley, which is between the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem. And as they descend in verse 37, it says, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Luke is the only gospel writer to speak of this crowd being the multitude of his disciples. I don't know if you ever considered who these people were that make up these crowds that were welcoming him into the city. Uh, in other books, it doesn't seem to be clear exactly who makes up this crowd. Uh, are these people true friends of Jesus? Are they people uh, who are maybe superficially excited now, the Gospel of John, for example, in chapter 12, 
seems to leave it a bit ambiguous. Uh, if you're familiar with John and his gospel, he's very skeptical of crowds. Uh, in chapter 2, Jesus is not entrusting himself to men, to the crowds, because he knows it's in a man. In chapter 6, the crowds are all excited because of the feeding of the 5,000. They seek after him because they want him to do more cool stuff and they can eat lots of food. And by the end of his teaching in John, in John 6, uh, they're leaving. They're, they're, they're gone because they can't handle his teaching. It's too hard. Uh, John is, is skeptical of crowds, typically, in his book. Uh, and, and yet, in Luke's gospel, he seems to have a, a little more favorable view of the crowd. He presents them a little more favorably. So I, I think the best way to understand this is just to, be, to understand that there's a mixed audience here. There's a mixed group of people. Uh, there are those who are uh, superficial about this. They just are hoping to see cool stuff. Uh, as, Luke see, or as John seems to indicate, uh, they're there because they know he did some, some good miracles and they want to see some, again, see him do great things. Uh, they don't necessarily believe him or trust, or trust him. And yet Luke is drawing our attention to those who do. He's talking about those who are disciples of Jesus. And he's telling us that this group of people, as they join in the crowd, they are worshiping. They're rejoicing at what is going on. Again, a full understanding of of who Jesus is and what all is going on. They they did not possess that, but they nevertheless understand that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king who would come, and they are celebrating him as such. And they are worshiping God. And it says they're worshiping God on account of the mighty deeds that they had seen, that Jesus had done in their midst. And we've seen many of these things. Jesus' ministry was characterized by a lot of great, mighty deeds and and miracles of different sorts, healings of different kinds, uh, power over nature, raising the dead even, all kinds of great powers. And this is leading his disciples to worship God and to rejoice. Again, the Pharisees, they don't see it this way. They don't see this as appropriate. uh, But that's because they don't see this whole picture rightly. Uh, They don't understand this mighty, this man who's sitting on a donkey is in fact the Lord. That he's in fact the Messiah. That he's done these mighty deeds attesting himself to be the Son of God. To be the one who has come uh, to, to display the mercy of God to God's people. It should, this event, the person of Jesus, should induce praise. It should lead to worship. It should do that for all. God has revealed himself to be a merciful God. So he, he tells this to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. He declares his name to Moses there and says that he is merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithful faithfulness. He's, he shows and displays mercy. He, he said that. He, he made that clear to Moses. And yet he most clearly reveals himself to be a merciful God in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ, to take the sins of his people upon himself and to die for them on the cross and rise again from the dead, to purchase redemption for all who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the mercy of God on display. Jesus came and revealed God's mercy. And his acts of compassion and kindness to other people as he heals people, as he's compassionate on widows and raises their sons, as he heals blind beggars, as he does all of these great works and and opens the eyes of the blind, heals lepers, 
These are all demonstrations that God is in fact a merciful God. And of course, ultimately seen in the fact that Jesus would, as the righteous one, would bear the sins of his people and substitute himself in for us that we might live and we might be redeemed children of God. And so in light of this, worship is the rightful response to all that Christ has done and for who he is. To praise God for his mercy, for his grace in sending Jesus. This worship continues in verse 38. The people begin to quote a verse from Psalm 118. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Many commentators point out that this was a common greeting for pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for feasts. But I think there's more to it than just that. Uh, Luke is reminding us here that, again, that this is, not, this is not an ordinary pilgrim to just receive an ordinary greeting from people as he's entering the city. This is the king who has come. The king, the Lord, who has come to Jerusalem. And the disciples knew this. They realized this. And they declare him to be king. And they treat him as a king. And while it's not entirely impressive from a human perspective, they're doing what they can as they recognize what's happening. And they quote Psalm 118, I think for a reason. There's a, a fascinating article that uh, I think is, is, is uh, persuasive, um, arguing that Psalm 118 may very well have been a psalm of David. It doesn't explicitly say that in Psalm 118 may very well have been a psalm of David and may have been written to commemorate David's return to Jerusalem after he had, been, uh, had fled Jerusalem because of Absalom's rebellion. So if you'll remember that from 2 Samuel, uh, I think it's in chapter 19, after Absalom's been killed, uh, uh, David returns to Jerusalem, and as he's coming, the people gather and they're celebrating as he enters Jerusalem. That seems to be uh, a, a very... Um, would make sense of what we read in Psalm 118 as a, a very plausible historical context for that psalm. And it would also make sense then to why these crowds, if they understand it to be uh, about the psalm, to be about the Davidic king returning and coming into Jerusalem, it would make sense why they then quote this psalm here as the son of David is now entering Jerusalem. Remember, they, they know he's the son of David. We saw the blind beggar at the end of chapter 18 uh, calling out to Jesus, the son of David. That's, again, a, a kingly term for Jesus. And so here we have the son of David entering Jerusalem, which makes this psalm, of all psalms, very much appropriate. And so they, they quote this psalm. They're celebrating. They're praising. They're worshiping. And then there's also this phrase there. They quote the psalm. And then they add uh, a phrase that, that's reminiscent of, of what the angels declared back in chapter 2, verse 14. They say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So you think of the multitude of angels uh, declaring when, when Jesus had been born, uh, glory to God in the highest. Uh, it's very similar to what's being said here. Again, we have the worship of God. That he is the merciful God. He's bringing peace. He's bringing salvation through the King through Jesus. He's worthy of all glory and all honor. Glory to God in the highest. And again, while natural men do not see this, while the Pharisees rebuke Jesus and his disciples for this, this is the essential, necessary 
response to Jesus. It is worship. Jesus confirms this in response to these Pharisees. In verse 40, what does he say? I tell you, if these were silent, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is a stinging rebuke to these Pharisees of their unbelief that even inanimate creation knows its maker. The Lord himself will be praised. If it would not come from man, the creation itself will declare his praise. It's essential. It's right. He's the king, not only for the Jews, but of the entire world. He will reign from sea to sea, as Zechariah said. The triune God will be glorified. Worship is the rightful response to God and to who he is, and and especially to his acts of mercy, to his acts of grace. And to the work that Jesus has done as the mediator in coming to a people that were in darkness. When you consider this picture, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, what do you see? What do you see? Is it just kind of an embarrassing display, worthy of scorn, worthy of rebuke? Or can you see the King? Can you see the long-awaited Messiah? Clothed in humility, coming as the mercy of God to work salvation for His people. Though this is not how we would expect a King to come, nor is it how we would expect salvation to be worked, if you just asked somebody, you know, Uh, what do you think it means that God would save people? If they're not familiar with the Bible, they would not give you an answer anything like this. This is not how we normally think about it. This is not how the wisdom of man operates. And yet, do you see here the wisdom of God as the God-man comes in righteousness to offer himself for the sins of his people? Do you see the wisdom of the cross That God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. That God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. That God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This text calls us, it summons us to worship God, to join in these disciples in worshiping our God. For his mighty works, especially as we consider his mighty work of salvation that God has worked in and through the Son of God coming to earth, going to Jerusalem, and bearing the sins of his people on the cross and rising from the dead. This calls us to worship. It also summons us to bear the reproach of Christ in this lifetime. Jesus was misunderstood. You see this here. Uh, he was, he was uh, the Pharisees. They don't see this. They rebuke him. Just consider the restraint of Jesus in this moment. That these men, in their ignorance, though their professed wisdom and might and greatness, have the nerve to rebuke Jesus and tell him to rebuke his disciples. 
I know what it's like when people falsely accuse me or treat me wrongly. I, I want to rise up with them and scream so that everybody knows the truth and everybody knows what's right and, and, and put off whoever would falsely rebuke me for something. It's frustrating. It can be maddening. And as we consider our world that we live in, it can likewise be maddening to be continually misunderstood as believers, as, as Christians. And yet we look to Jesus, and this happened over and over again to him. Natural man would look at him and what he was doing and completely reject him. And somehow, in the wisdom of God and in the plan of God, this is also how he ended up on the cross bearing our sins. And so we're to go to Christ who suffered, we're to share in his reproach in this lifetime, to understand we will be misunderstood, Christ himself will be misunderstood, the gospel we preach will be shunned and and set aside as being silly, they will look at things through natural eyes, through that lens, and they will not see the glory of it, they will not see the goodness of it. And of course our hope is that God does save, speaking of the power and wisdom of God, that it is seen through the preaching of the gospel, that it is the power of God unto salvation. And so we continue to go with this message. We continue to lay it before people in hopes that God will be the ones to open people's eyes, that they might believe, that they might see it through a true lens, that they might see it with, with a divine perspective and see the wisdom of God in the cross. So let us see with eyes of faith that Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He was veiled in flesh. He was riding, in this case, on a donkey. And yet he is also the one who has purchased redemption. He is also the one who has since been glorified. He is at the Father's right hand. And he will one day return in glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, We confess that we fall short of your glory. We fall so short of your law. Father, our, our minds even, we are sinful even in our thoughts and in our minds. And we continually need to be reminded that you work differently than men do, than human beings do. I pray that we would, when we consider Christ, when we consider his, his incarnation, when we consider his life, all that he did, his death and his resurrection, that we would not view it through natural eyes and disdain it, but that we would see it through eyes of faith And that we would forever see it as the power of God and salvation and cling to Christ. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be unashamed, that you would help us to be bold and to be encouraged in this. I pray that we would, um, as your people have done throughout history, back to the book of Acts, that, that, that we would rejoice when and when and if we do suffer 
for believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, may we not capitulate to what men demand of us, what men want us to believe, what they demand of us, though they would look scornfully at the gospel, though they would look scornfully at your word, I pray that you would give us great resolve and convince us to the core of our being that this is the truth of your word. This is your truth. Father, we thank you for revealing this to us. I pray that every person here would see this with great clarity, that we would behold our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would rejoice in our Redeemer and glory in Him alone. Father, encourage us, strengthen your people as we go from this place. Renew us in our faith. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.